You're listening to This Month in HIV, the body's monthly podcast discussion about the latest, most important developments in HIV. For more information on this podcast, including a full transcript, visit us on the web at www.thebody.com slash HIV month. Welcome to This Month in HIV. My name is Bonnie Goldman, and I am Editorial Director of TheBody.com. Today, I'm pleased to have with me two guests. Dr. Donald Cutler is Chief Division of Gastroenterology and Liver Disease at St. Luke's Roosevelt in New York City. He is an expert on metabolic complications in HIV and will fill us in on some of the latest updates on this issue. Also with me is AIDS activist Nelson Virgil. Nelson has been living with HIV for 26 years, and he's been advocating around metabolic complications of HIV for years. He will lead our discussion with Dr. Cutler. Welcome to both of you. Hi, Bonnie. How are you doing? Thanks for having me here. And thanks uh, to Dr. Cutler for, for joining us. Yeah, before we start, uh, Dr. Cutler, I wanted to um, ask you a few uh, compelling questions that many people want to hear the answer to. I'd like to start with uh, some basic ones, if you, if you don't mind, because some people really have not been exposed to information about body changes in HIV. In your opinion, how widespread are um, body changes in the HIV-positive population? Are they, is there any way that somebody who's recently diagnosed can find out what their probabilities to, to get body changes? That's two questions. Mm-hmm. The first one, how frequent are the body shape changes? It depends which shape you're talking about. Some people gain body fat and others lose body fat. Of the people who gain body fat, for example, in the belly or behind the neck, it's about a third of patients who have that kind of problem. In terms of losing body fat, to get a really skinny legs or the, the skinny face that people notice that's so stigmatizing, in the old days it was almost everybody. And currently it's not many people. With the change in the antivirals, specifically the stopping the use of stavidine or Xeret and limiting the use of zidovidine or AZT, many fewer people get really thin from lipodystrophy. Now, the second question, is there any way that somebody recently diagnosed can avoid these issues? I gave part of the answer. You can avoid the loss of fat by the choice of medications, at least in the United States, very few people are taking those medications that will cause a body fat loss. Another way of preventing body fat gain uh, was shown about a year and a half ago at the international meeting in Sydney, Australia, and limiting the amount of weight that's gained as people start antivirals will limit the amount of fat that ends up in the belly. How do we actually limit the amount of weight gain that somebody gains when you start actually medications? That's a good question. In the study, which was from Brazil, they use what's called the NSEP diet, the healthy diet for somebody with heart disease, which is moderating the carbohydrates, decreasing the amount of fat, having more fiber in the diet. So you tend not to eat things that are so rich and so dense in calories. It's a standard type diet for people with heart disease. At least in this study that was presented, people who started antivirals, their first regimen, plus the diet, gained much less weight, their cholesterol didn't go up nearly as much, their belly didn't get nearly as big uh, as people who just were allowed to eat whatever they wanted. 
Dr. Kali, another issue is the actual word that we use for these changes. You know, people have been using the word lipodystrophy for a long time. And, and is that still a correct uh, word for, for what's happening in HIV? Not really, though when you say it, everybody knows what you're talking about. So you could probably get away with it. But lipodystrophy, the classic lipodystrophy, really referred to genetic problems. It was something that people were born with that as they developed would show the, the wasting, would show the, the thinning of the skin in the face and the arms and the legs, etc. Lipodystrophy in people who are HIV infected is used to mean anything. Fat loss or fat gain, which are not necessarily related. Diabetes or high cholesterol, which once again may or may not be related to any of the other problems. We would probably be better off if we were to call fat gain lipohypertrophy, fat loss lipoatrophy, and then talk about problems with sugar and, and fats separately, rather than just try to make them all into one thing. So it is not one thing. It's a different syndrome that may happen together or separately. And you're saying that uh, lipoatrophy, which is fat loss under the skin, in, in the legs, extremities, in the butt, in the face, it's actually not occurring as much in the United States because we're not using ACT or D4T. But how about gain? Is gain occurring as much as we used to see it in the 90s, for instance? Fat gain is, I believe, as common now as it's, as, as it's ever been. Oh, okay. I don't think that that's really changed. And it's about a third of the patients or so complain of fat gain. It, most of the complaints about belly fat, or are the people still seeing it in their neck? Is there one that's more likely? Belly fat is much more likely. Belly fat is, like I said, about a third of the patients. Of the people who gain fat behind their neck, it's probably somewhere between 5 and 10% will have a big growth. Interestingly enough, there are some obese people, not HIV-infected and not otherwise ill, who actually have small humps. They're called buffalo humps. Um, but in HIV, it, they, they seem to grow much, much larger. Dr. Cockley, how does somebody know if they're gaining more weight than normal because they're eating more or whether it's something related to HIV or HIV medications? Uh, some people com really complain about increased appetite once they start medications. Uh, is this related to the caloric intake, uh, how much food actually people are taking? Or is there something else, maybe the fact that the immune system may be getting better? You know how much weight you can lose when you're sick. And then after you're done being sick, how much weight you can gain and how fast you can gain weight just when you become healthy. It turns out that when people start their antivirals, especially when the T-cells are down around 200, people are sick. They may not know it, they may not realize it, but they're sick. If you think about it, antivirals, they're not appetite stimulants, right? They're not anabolic agents. So how come people are gaining so much weight? I think the answer to that is that they were sick and had lost weight. So people were thinner than they would normally be. And when they take antivirals, it brings people back to normal. Normal in the United States is a risk of obesity. So it is actually better for somebody to start treatment when they're healthier to want to avoid any body changes? Is that the literature would say yes. People have looked from the very start as to what makes people lose weight, what makes people gain weight. It turns out it's a lot of things. Things related to the patient, for example, family history. Where you started with, before you got HIV, if you were 280 pounds, you're probably a lot more likely, when all is said and done, to complain of a big belly 
than to complain of skinny legs. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you started out 5'10", 130, those people are probably much more likely to complain that their face looks bad or you know, the veins in their legs are like really prominent than the complaint of having a big belly. So where you start with, what your family history is. You know, if, if everybody in your family is obese, you're probably more likely to have problems on therapy by being obese rather than being skinny. In your experience, have you seen any differences whatsoever on what people start with, what different types of treatments? Are there any data out there that shows that if people start, for instance, uh, Natripla versus Akalitra, Truvada, do they have any differences in, in body changes? There's not a lot of data on that, I must say. I don't know that I explained the last question well enough, mm. but there are many factors that will affect what happens to you, and they can either be related to the virus, they can be related to the medication, or they can be related to the, the patient himself or herself. For example, family history is related to the patient. Taking a drug like D4T or Zaret is related to, obviously, the drug. As you look through, many people have several of these predisposing factors. Another question that I'd like to ask you uh, as part of this discussion of body changes, lipodystrophy, or what we used to call lipodystrophy, and now we may be calling it more like metabolic disorders, also includes increases in triglycerides and cholesterol, especially the bad cholesterol, and decreases in, in HDL, the good cholesterol. Are people with increases in cholesterol and triglycerides, are they more prone to having belly fat increases? Have you seen anything on that subject? In general, people with a lot of belly fat tend to have increased levels of cholesterol. But there are some medications that even if given to people who are very thin will cause the cholesterol levels to go up. And there are certain genetic inherited tendencies in anyone that may make the cholesterol go up high often when they take antivirals, whether or not people are obese. You don't have everything or nothing. You can have a big belly and high cholesterol, but you don't necessarily have to have a big belly to have a high cholesterol. Dr. Cutler, could you specify which medications you're referring to? The one that does it more than any other is ritonavir, also called Norvir. It turns out that it depends on how much you take. If you take, for example, the drug Rayataz, you only take one Norvir. If you're taking Kaletra, on the other hand, you take two Norvir. If you take the drug Tipranavir, I believe you end up taking four Norvir mm-hmm. in a day because that's what, it, that's what you need in order to get good drug levels to keep the virus under control. But it turns out the more Norvir you take, the higher the fat levels are in the blood. In Kaletra, you're taking the Norvir within the one pill that you're taking. Right. You're not taking... You don't take a, a Norvir tablet. It's like stuck in the Kaletra tablet. Many people aren't aware that when they're taking Kaletra, they're also taking Norvir. And Dr. Gottmer, um, another assumption people make, and I think even some clinicians out there, is that if you treat high cholesterol with cholesterol-lowering drug or anything else you know, that treats it, you actually will tend to decrease belly fat. Is that a right assumption, or are there any data to actually substantiate that? No. It's the other way around. If you have a big belly and a high cholesterol and you make the belly small, the cholesterol will go down. But if you have a big belly and a high cholesterol and you take a drug to lower the cholesterol, it may not do anything to your belly. Are there any treatments right now for the belly fat gain? 
No. There are no treatments that are uh, approved by the FDA and sort of in use and drug companies paying for it. Obviously, losing weight does something, although many people will say it doesn't do nearly as much as you want it to. You try to lose weight, lose your belly, but then you lose your butt or your face looks worse, and your belly doesn't change all that much. How about exercise? Some people, some people do that. Exercise will do it. especially, And the exercise, interestingly enough, that tends to do it is more resistance training exercise, lifting, than, than actually aerobics, surprisingly enough. Some people are actually um, afraid of aerobics, right, because of fat loss. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are other people who have shown that some of the anti-diabetic medicines, like uh, glucophage, mm-hmm. metformin, have been shown to decrease belly size. Mm-hmm. There were several studies that looked at the drug growth hormone, and growth hormone did significantly lower belly size, but the FDA didn't approve it, likely because they were not happy with the side effect profile. They thought it was too toxic a drug. Now, a month and a half ago, there was a meeting in London, the lipodystrophy workshop. At that meeting, two other treatments were talked about. One was a drug called IGF-1, or IGF-1 combined to a binding protein. It's what growth hormone causes to happen. But here, rather than using growth hormone, they use the IGF-1, and rather than this worsening toxicity, worsening blood sugar, it actually made it better. It also caused an anabolic effect, so lean mass went up, and the amount of fat in the trunk went down, but it didn't really lower it as much as had been seen before with growth hormone. But it was a little tiny study just to show that it could work. In addition, there's a drug called tesamorelin, which is also known as growth hormone releasing factor. So when you give tesamorelin, you get a growth hormone-like effect, and that also causes belly fat to go down. It doesn't cause glucose to get worse, like growth hormone does. At this same meeting in London, Julian Falutz from Montreal looked at the two studies of this drug tesamorelin to see if it mattered what kind of antivirals he used. Does it matter if you're taking protease inhibitors? or you're taking the non-nucleosides. You know, does it matter whether you take Calitra or Sestiva? It turns out it doesn't matter. The drug tesamorelin will cause body fat to decrease, will cause belly fat to decrease, no matter what your drug is. That drug is not approved yet? The drug is not approved yet. Uh-huh. But there have been several studies which have shown its benefit, three actually. I believe the FDA is looking at it now, or if not now, very, very soon. So if, if you were an HIV positive patient yourself right now in 2009 and you had problems with belly fat, what would you do right now? Just, just diet and exercise? Is that all we have? Right now, diet and exercise is the best hope. I would not treat with an anti-diabetic medicine in the absence of diabetes. So you're not sure the whether, for instance, glucophage, like a metformin, which is an anti-diabetic drug, would do anything on somebody that is actually experiencing belly fat gain? Let's say you have somebody who has to wear size 40 pants uh-huh. or keep their pants so low that their belly hangs over like in a, in a not very nice-looking way, and you start taking glucophage, your waist would probably go from 40 to 39. It wouldn't go down to a 33 or a 32 or, a, or even a 34. The effect of glucophage is really tiny. The effect of growth hormone when it was used at high doses 
was more like two or three inches. He'd go down to a 37 or a 36 waist, but that was real toxic. It caused a lot of problems. Very Drugs precise. like Tamarillin only goes back, goes down an inch or so. The unfortunate thing, in, in my point of view, is that we having really seen combinations of therapy, you know, for instance, exercise plus either the growth hormone releasing factor or glucophage. As an activist, I think I'm also a little frustrated that there are not real guidelines on the nutritional aspects, like you say, nutrition, diet. Where do we send people when they want diet information about where, what to eat? Um, do you recommend just a Mediterranean diet, uh, anything specific? A Mediterranean diet would work well. I tend to see in patients positive or negative, that people tend to do better with low-carbohydrate diets as opposed to low-fat diets. There has only been a little bit of data about the Mediterranean diet, and for those who don't know what a Mediterranean diet is, it is olive oil, nuts, etc., very low in, in highly saturated fats, more fish, less meat. But there's been very little published on it in terms of its effects in HIV. And that brings me to the next question, you know, as a researcher, and you see patients too, which is actually a good thing, because some researchers don't actually see patients, but if you had all the money in the world, all the funding in the world, what would be your main research project when it comes to the area of body shape disorders in HIV? That's an easy question. If I had all the money in the world, I would study everything. <laughs> but if you said, if I could do one thing, what would I do? And what it would be would be a comprehensive program in which I wouldn't be looking for one treatment, but rather I would use the combination. It would be diet, and it would be exercise, and it would be medication. We presented a study, our laboratory, at the lipodystrophy meeting in London, in which we compared diet and exercise to diet and exercise plus the drug rosiglitazone or rosiglitazone alone. Rosiglitazone is an insulin sensitizing agent, it's an anti-diabetic agent. The question we asked is if we treat an HIV positive person with big belly lipodystrophy and an HIV negative person who has a big belly metabolic syndrome the same, would they respond the same? If I got somebody who's HIV to lose 15 pounds and get in good shape, would their insulin resistance change the same as an HIV negative? Though we didn't have enough people to tell for absolute sure, it seemed that they responded pretty much the same. If you take an HIV person and the average weight loss we got was about 15 pounds, the changes in an HIV positive and an HIV negative were really pretty much the same. Not only in the belly, but also in things like cholesterol and the special types of good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. It looked like HIV didn't really influence it very much. So in the absence of any other information, I would treat an HIV-positive person the same as I would treat a metabolic syndrome. The best treatment is to treat it all, not looking for one magic pill, but get people to eat less, get people to eat smarter, get people to exercise more. If there is high cholesterol, bring it down. If the triglycerides, another type of fat is high, bring it down. If the usual medicines don't work, well, then you try other things like fish oil, omega-3 fatty acid, or niacin. There are a number of these new medicines that have been tried in HIV, and they seem to work about as well in HIV as in non-HIV. It's not so different. So I think that the optimal way to do it is a whole integrated program. 
But don't you think that many patients around the country don't have a physician that they could turn to who has this kind of very understanding point of view? There are at least a lot of clinics, maybe not a lot of private doctors, but there are a lot of clinics that are putting together metabolic clinics, that are putting together expertise to look at having a cardiologist or an endocrinologist treating diabetes go into the HIV clinics to treat people. But you are right, it's not really fully integrated, but I think that would be the best. As an activist, I think the community has also have to take an active role in advocating for things like this. In Houston, we have a nonprofit where we provide exercise and dietitians looking at people's diets and, and trainers. Yet, in the past five years, we haven't been able to duplicate it in this kind of programs anywhere else because money, money and funding are already tight lately on, especially on in HIV. People don't sometimes don't even have the money to get the treatments, the HIV medications, which are basic. So, it's 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 a it's a battle. My next question, which is really related to this, is how do we get insurance companies or Medicare, Medicaid, um, other systems that pay for for medication? How do we get them to accept that body changes in HIV are really not a cosmetic issue per se? It's something that not only affects people's self-esteem and, and anxiety and depression and quality of life, but it may actually be something that also affects their survival eventually. That's where we have the most challenge right now is how do we shift from perceiving this as a cosmetic issue and shifting third-party payers, insurance companies, to see it as a clinical problem. It's not really a medical question, sort of a question for activists. I think that the answer is, 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 is activism. My suggestion would be to push it as a comprehensive care program rather than a reimbursement for drug X because, in fact, some of the treatments are so costly that I don't know that I would be happy paying for the treatment in somebody who is not watching their diet or would not consider doing exercise or even, which is what's happened before, which is what I think limited before, you don't necessarily even look at the results of what you're doing, that it's really considered more of a entitlement. You know, I mean, to have to have to get the prescription, as opposed to having somebody measure you, work out your risk, give you some treatment, follow up. If you're not responding the way you should, look to find out why. Sometimes it's the medicine's not even being taken. I think if you accept the fact that there's not a magic bullet, but there are a lot of things that you can do to help yourself, I think that the activist should really push on that. That's my main goal, but. Just wanted to summarize because some people may be so concerned about this discussion that, and they're considering going on HIV medications for the first time. The fact is that we're not experiencing as many problems metabolically right now compared to 10 years ago. Is that, is that a fair statement in your point of view? Should people Absolutely. be really concerned before they start treatment? The one thing that happens that doesn't seem to have changed is that if people gain weight, they may get a big belly. On the other hand, the diabetes that used to be seen, especially with Crixivan, we don't see much of that anymore. There may be more diabetes that comes with Xeret or AZT, but for people taking the newer medicines, we don't tend to see that nearly as much. The lipoatrophy, the skinny face, the skinny butt, the really skinny legs, if we see somebody now who has that, it's somebody who's been treated for a long time and has had that for years. With the new medicines, it doesn't tend to happen that much anymore. The high triglycerides and high cholesterol, we still see some of it, 
although much of it occurs in people who are genetically predisposed to it. The new medicines like the integrase inhibitor or the CCR5 antagonist or the entry inhibitor, Fusion, don't seem to cause any of these problems. I think that people now are a lot less likely to develop these changes than they were in the past. It may be that if people are really careful about trying to prevent weight gain and eating very healthily at the time they start their antivirals, that they may be much less likely to get it. On the other hand, if somebody weighed 280 before any of this happened and you make them healthy again, they're as likely as not going to go back to a weight of 280. Are some of these changes related to aging, and, uh, or are they really accelerated aging by HIV and HIV medications? Doctors also saying to patients, well, don't complain, you really are healthy. It's just that you're getting older, too. They are steady changes, but if you look at HIV-negative people, and even though the changes are pretty continuous, when the people start really seeing the belly fat and when the men start losing their butt, even if they're not HIV infected, it seems to be somewhere between ages like 45 to 50. At that point, genes fit differently. All right? They're, they're no longer tight in the thighs and loose in the waist. It's the other way around. And also some hormone changes too, right? Right. People's own growth hormones go down. People's own testosterone levels go down. Even thyroid, we're seeing some reports on thyroid dysfunction in some patients too, right? That's kind of an immune reconstitution problem, though you'll get laboratory abnormalities, it really causes your thyroid to get so bad that you need hormone replacement. So it is good for patients that are experiencing some of these changes to at least get some of their hormones checked and talk to their doctors about it, right? Absolutely, and women tend to have more problems with thyroid than men, so it's especially important in a woman because she might develop a thyroid problem totally independent of HIV. Not everything that happens to people who are HIV is really HIV-related. Dr. Cotley, one last question from my side. We've seen some reports on decreases in bone density. Is that something that, that you see in your practice? I'm not even talking about research. I'm talking about your practice, you see a lot of patients in New York. You've been around since the 80s. I think you're probably one of the leaders, in my point of view, in metabolic disorders. In your practice, have you started to see any bone-related fractures, any bone-related oh, for, for For a long time. In fact, the bones that I've seen to break most commonly, being in the middle of a city, are bones in the feet, in people who run on treadmills. I don't see a whole lot of broken hips or broken ribs or crushed vertebrae, but I've seen people break bones in, in their feet simply by the pounding. At the meeting in London, there were a couple of interesting talks about the bone. It's known that thin bones, brittle bones, are very common. Whereas most people blame antivirals, you can also see it in people who are untreated. So HIV treatment naive also may have uh, thinned, decalcified bones. If that's the case, well, then it can't just be due to drug. And there are two possibilities, and they're actually the one possibility that most people think is that when you're sick, you have inflammation. Inflammation tends to cause bone to break down. So just like somebody who has chronic bronchitis from cigarette smoking and on that basis gets brittle bones, somebody can have a chronic infection with HIV and get brittle bones. It was felt that it's just the inflammation. However, a group from Ireland exposed growing bone cells to HIV in serum, 
either a low viral load or a high viral load or a negative viral load, and actually showed that when you exposed the cells to HIV, the bone cells tended to turn into fat cells. Bone cells and fat cells are related. So that there may be something about HIV itself that tends to shut off the calcium being laid down in bone. That was brand new information that hadn't been seen before. There was another study, though, and this was really very hard to understand, and it was related to the study called the SMART study. You know, the SMART study in which you either stay on therapy or when your T-cells go up, you stop therapy, and then when your T-cells go down, you start it again. It was a big study of a couple thousand people, but 275 of those subjects actually had bone density studies done, either when they're on continuous therapy or starting and stopping. And in fact, in that study, the people who stayed on therapy tended to have more bone problems than those who started and stopped. The authors said that is not a reason to start and stop. All right, so don't take that as a reason, but the people who were on therapy and didn't stop were more likely to have fractures. And when they followed over, I believe, two years, they were more likely to lose calcium in their bones than the people who did start and stop. That was a surprise finding, as almost everything out of the SMART study is. Nobody's really sure what to make of it, other than as we move forward, we probably should be concentrating on bone density and making sure that we don't allow our patients to get to the point where they're likely to have fractures. And that's definitely a problem I was saying. Very few doctors are actually prescribing bone scans, DEXA scans before therapy, or actually once every few years to follow patients. And not because they don't think it's a problem, it's just that it's, it's really not part of uh, standard of care, you know, and that's another activist issue, as you can... The activist uh, issue is to make sure that there's reimbursement. Also, those that stayed on continuous therapy also have fewer problems with heart attacks and and cardiovascular disease, right? Right, as well as other endpoints. The people who started and stopped are more likely to have problems with liver disease, more likely to have problems with tumors. Um, Starting and stopping turned out not to be healthy. Any other questions, Bonnie? I think Dr. Adler has been extremely uh, helpful clarifying some of the questions at community. uh, If you have bone density issues, is it related to fat accumulation or fat wasting? Are they all kind of the same phenomena? Sort of, because they tend to be found in the same people. But no, I don't know how they're necessarily related in terms of the cause. It sounds like there's hints of a lack of calcium in patients. Would this mean that somebody should take calcium supplements to prevent issues? I don't know. Or I don't know if taking calcium supplements prevents it. Or exercise. That's the problem. I mean, I mean to have a, to have a, you should avoid vitamin deficiency. You should avoid eating too little calcium, and that's mainly a problem in people who have trouble with milk and dairy. If you're lactose intolerant, you tend to eat less calcium than if you're not lactose intolerant. Somebody who is at risk for bone loss should make sure they're taking enough calcium in their diet, should make sure there's at least enough vitamin D in their diet. I don't know, though, that just by saying, oh, take an extra two vitamins and everything will be cool. I just don't know that. I kind of think that you'd be better off having your bone density checked. Certainly, if your bone density is low and you take the regular 
bone density medicines, like the kind that you see on TV, they do work. I'm not sure how well vitamin D and calcium works, but the kinds of drugs, what are called bisphosphonates, that you either take every day or every week or every month, they do cause bone density to rise. Finally, do you see a lot of uh, people having metabolic complication myths? They think it's all the protease inhibitors or they think it's due to all antiretrovirals. Is there myths that we need broken? I don't know. I mean, patients tend, if they believe the doctor, they'll believe what the doctor tells them. And so if there's a myth, it's probably the myth of the doctor. <laughs> this whole idea that protease inhibitors caused everything didn't come from the patients. It came from the doctors. We had it wrong. We tend to have it wrong a lot. <laughs> unfortunately. I think that's one of the reasons that these kind of complications, bone, metabolic complications, and body shape changes are so difficult because it's an ongoing understanding, and we don't know that much about this. There's another part of it, though, and it's that we're looking so hard at T-cells or at viral load, we just tend to forget about the rest. We're working so hard to make sure that people don't get CMD and die or toxoplasmosis and die, you know what I mean? So that when they get better and they're not going to die of the AIDS things, well, we can either say that's fine or what else would it be? HIV docs, we're not built to be worried about people's prostates or breast self-exams. We were aiming towards fighting PCP and CMV and all the rest. So we've had to retrain ourselves to be primary care physicians, to look at things that would happen to somebody who doesn't have a killer disease. What happens to people like that? You either get cancer or heart disease or you develop Alzheimer's disease or bad kidney disease or all the other stuff. We're just coming around as doctors to realize that. Patients also have to come around. Probably the best example of where patients and doctors have been caught short has to do with cigarette smoking. I knew if I, if I had a patient who was dying of AIDS in 1985, I didn't bother him much about smoking cigarettes. What for? Now it turns out that lung cancer is really common in HIV and has nothing to do with HIV, it seems, and has everything to do with cigarette smoking. So only lately have doctors like myself said, look, you're not going to die of AIDS. Why would you go through all that and then allow yourself to die of lung cancer? How could you be so crazy? We're just getting around to that now. I guess you need to have a historic point of view to understand this whole issue and how we came to the point where we're now dealing with this. There's nobody to blame because it's success. But if we really want real success, it's not only not allowing somebody to die of AIDS, it's not allowing anybody to die before their time of anything. And also dealing with quality of life issues. You may live a long life, but you might have this belly that embarrasses you. Or facial weapon or fatigue or you know, many other issues. Uh, and, and one more question that I just thought about, talking about doctors that are basically training themselves to be primary care physicians and treating people with their aging with HIV and we're showing up with some of these metabolic problems. Is, is there any place, any, any websites, any groups where guidelines are posted for doctors when it comes to metabolic disorders. One place, one document, is anything that, that a doctor that's starting to treat HIV nowadays can go to to train themselves. If you Google HIV metabolic guidelines, mm -hmm. there have been several that have been written. 
from the International Association for the Physicians in AIDS Care or for the International AIDS Society USA. I believe that, that Europeans also have one. There are some guidelines that are written. The early guidelines were not great. They would say, well, in the absence of any information, you probably should treat diabetes and HIV like you treat diabetes and non-HIV. For high cholesterol or high triglycerides as well, you should consider the medications. After that, you should treat just like you would treat anybody else. I think the, the major point is that you don't ignore something that's bad. In the past, we ignored cigarette smoking because we were worried that people were going to die of CMV. Now we shouldn't ignore cigarette smoking. We shouldn't ignore a high cholesterol, and we shouldn't ignore diabetes, and we shouldn't ignore excess weight gain. We shouldn't ignore any of it. So success has allowed us to focus on these other details. Yeah, and those who are successful have more work to do. I also remind patients that actually medications may have some side effects, but the worst side effect is leaving HIV untreated. <laughs> so I always say that because sometimes we lose perspective that these medications have kept a lot of us alive for 20-plus yeah. years. Sometimes uh, the new guys and girls that are coming through uh, with treatment are so afraid. And I remind them leaving HIV untreated can cause more problems than any side effects you may have in the future that can be treated by, by a good doctor. I was in clinic today and saw a 24-year-old girl with CD4 of 5 who had herpes around the rectum, around the vagina, who was being treated for MAC infection in the liver and has a huge liver, and who also probably has CMV. She's lost 70 pounds. She doesn't leave the house. She feels miserable. There's no reason for it. She got to a good doctor, though. <laughs> She's in a good clinic. Yeah, good clinic. That's life-saving. Anything else, Bunny? Uh, Dr. Gottler has been great at... I think this is really great, and hopefully it explains some of the phenomena that people have been experiencing, and maybe it will uh, motivate a lot of people to go on a diet and do some exercise and take charge of their health in that way while waiting for other s treatments or other understanding of metabolic complications. Hopefully we'll bother Dr. Cutler in the future to give us more details about any progress in this field, too. So thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you, Nelson, for joining us and for leading the conversation. I really appreciate that. Well, thanks a lot for having us. We'll talk to each other soon, I hope. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. You've reached the end of this month in HIV's program. To read the transcript or let us know what you think of this program, please visit www.thebody.com slash HIV month.